you're listening to the front page edition of All Things Considered on Florida's 89.1 WUFT-FM. The seat of the mayor of Gainesville is up for grabs this election season, and this week we've had we've been hearing from them. Today we hear from Ed Brady, who spoke with Florida's 89.1 WUFT-FM's Leah Harding. So there's about three weeks left on the campaign trail. Can you just tell me what your experience campaigning has been so far? It's been a pretty good uh, experience, I'd say. Uh, it's been um, fun campaigning again and getting out to uh, meet voters, um, talking to voters in their neighborhood about some of the things that concern them, and generally uh, receiving a pretty good reception. And so when you're talking to these people, what are some common things that they're telling you, whether it be issues that they want you to address or just some concerns? I'd say the overriding issue is affordability and just being able to make ends meet. I think what people in City Hall, or let's just say, I, I think what the elected officials and sort of the senior management in, in City Hall don't understand is that this is still a very tough economy for a lot of low and middle income families out there and they are consistently worried about uh, their rising utility bills about uh, the general cost of living in Gainesville Um, everyone agrees that Gainesville is a wonderful city with wonderful people it's a great place to to live but you have to be able to afford to live here and that's I think the overriding issue I hear uh, from from the people I meet And then how is your campaign addressing those problems? Well, we are running pretty much a pocketbook campaign. Our our issues are focused on trying to bring some fiscal discipline to the budget, uh, trying to tackle the uh, crisis uh, facing our publicly owned utility with the biomass contract, uh, seeking to either exit the contract or renegotiate the rates, as well as rebate the over the current overcharges back to ratepayers, and then also uh, you know government does spend money. We do provide services, but to make sure that the services we provide are uh, paid for at a cost no greater than necessary, um, and to maintain and to maintain our basic infrastructure. Because if you don't maintain that, then it becomes even more costly a few years down the road. Right. And uh, when you're like out vying for votes and I mean, there's 50,000 students on campus. So how are you trying to rally the students to come out and show um, their support by voting for mayor? Well, my message to students is that I will treat them just like every other citizen in this community. They are they are the adults here. Uh, They technically are in charge. Uh, City Hall belongs to the people. And uh, the concerned students have will have their day at City Hall. They will be listened to. Uh, I can't always promise them they'll get what they want, but they will get an honest uh, presentation of their concerns, and uh, they'll have as good a chance as anyone to um, get the approval of, of the city commission. And then how do you plan to foster the relationship between Gainesville and the University of Florida? Is it through the students or what other ways would you see possible? Well, you have both the students and you have the administration, and we should have an open-door policy with both. And I don't uh, play favorites with one group over the other. Uh, the students, like I said, the students are every bit as much a part of the city as the administration for the university. And so, you know, I intend to have my door open to both. And then what experiences do you tell people that you have that separate you from the other candidates? 
Well, I'm a former two-term city commissioner uh, from 2002 to 2008, back when uh, the utility bill was lower, when property taxes were actually lowered, and when we did pave roads. And I'd point out to our U.S. listeners that uh, the Gators won four national titles during that time. <laughs> but uh, on the more serious note, I bring the practical experience of op- looking at working with large budgets of trying to you know enact some priority spending you know poor services and reducing costs to uh, the citizens i've also spent uh, time in the last five years working with uh, leaders in cities all around the country on market-oriented solutions to transportation and land use and housing problems so i can tap into a lot of resources that i've picked up over the years uh, to bring that level of experience to the mayor's office. And then if you are elected mayor, what would you say your vision would be for, say, the next 10 years, so even after you would have been in office? Yeah, I don't do visions. Um, I've heard all the other candidates talk about the visions they have for other people, but I'm old-fashioned enough to think that in representative government, um, we're there to carry out the will of the people, not to uh, impose our visions on them. So, I just want to take care of the fundamentals, uh, core services, uh, focus on affordability, and uh, I'll leave the vision making to other people. And then why should you win? What's your statement in a nutshell for why you should be the next mayor? I just think I'm the best candidate of the lot. I, uh, I, I know some of the other candidates, and I like them. I think they're nice people, but uh, we have some serious issues the city of Gainesville has to face. And uh, I think I'm best qualified to meet the needs that uh, we're currently facing. That was WUFTFM's Leah Harding speaking with mayoral candidate Ed Brady. News out of Venezuela that President Hugo Chavez has died has attracted much international attention. Chavez is known for his socialist ideals, adversarial position toward the U.S., and for his use of Venezuela's oil wealth. Chris Peralta spoke with Florida International University professor of politics Eduardo Gamera about Chavez's rise to power and what his death will mean for Venezuela's future. Well, uh, Hugo Chavez is uh, is the quintessential outsider uh, in in a, in a democratic Venezuela in the 1990s, uh, in a context where uh, Venezuela had a two-party system of two parties generally perceived as uh, uh, relatively corrupt and uh, and uh, parties that were incapable of delivering uh, to really the vast majority of Venezuelans, and but particularly the vast majority of impoverished urban dwellers in Venezuela. And uh, it's in that context in which uh, Hugo Chavez emerges. Uh, uh, Hugo Chavez largely was able to capture uh, that particular uh, constituency and, uh, and eventually was able to capture the middle class and won uh, elections in the, in the year 1998, in December of 1998, and those elections made him uh, uh, he won you know, over 60% of the vote and uh, had a had an extraordinary mandate to carry forth uh, to carry forward with a, with a reform agenda that he had promised uh, during uh, during his uh, his electoral process. Um, can you elaborate elaborate a little bit more about? Um Chavez's and the U.S. and how that relationship was, as well as a little bit about um, the relationship with other Latin American countries? 
sure. I mean, you know, with the, with the U.S., uh, he always had a problematic relationship, not only because of the nationalist undertones of everything he said from the very beginning, uh, but uh, let, let's, let's also recall that uh, in 2002, uh, there was a coup, and uh, a coup that actually ousted Chavez for two days. And uh, uh, while, you know, American embassy officials and American officials in the State Department and in the United States in general uh, uh, claimed that they weren't behind the coup, and I think that they probably weren't behind the coup, but we didn't do anything to condemn the coup. And in fact, uh, you know, uh, many people uh, in the government actually applauded the 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 the, the, the coup, uh, you know, publicly. In fact, and some, you know, even going as far as even sort of congratulating the the, the, the new the new government, right? And uh, and then two days later, Chavez was back in the in the, in office, and. Uh, and again, from just from the perspective of, of, of uh, you know, how Chavez constructed his message, you know, he was basically telling Venezuelans and the world, look, you guys said that uh, I was crazy about, you know, a U.S. conspiracy to oust me. And then here we go. We had a, we had a coup. And this coup was, was headed by George W. Bush, you know, who is now bombarding Iraq and is doing all of these other things around the world. And, uh, you know, he used to call George Bush Mr. Danger, right? And then he called them all kinds of names. But, you know, but it was Mr. Danger who, who he kind of, you know, uh, he personified evil, right, for Venezuela. And he went to the U.N. one, one day and gave a speech in which he, he said, you know, this is the day after Mr. Bush had been there. And he said, look, it still smells of sulfur here because, you know, uh, we have had uh, uh, the uh, – the, uh, um, the visit here of the devil. What might be next for Venezuela? I mean, there's the uh, elections are to be held soon, but what might we expect to um, to happen next? Well, uh, if we if we uh, follow basically what the government of Venezuela has said is uh, uh, because President Chavez was ill and could not be sworn in, they orchestrated something whereby the the tribunal, the the uh, the uh, constitutional tribunal, or the the uh, uh, the uh, uh, the equivalent of our Supreme Court ruled that the vice president, whom Chavez named in December before he went into the hospital in Cuba, would assume uh, the presidency. So the president uh, today is uh, a man named Nicolás Maduro, and uh, the way this is supposed to work now constitutionally, uh, as soon as they basically declare the presidency vacated by, in this case, death, Within 30 days, Venezuela has to have elections, and so what what now awaits Venezuela is a is a is a very short electoral process, uh, and uh, and of course it's moved, in, in my view uh, the Venezuelan government and particularly the, the the Bolivarian movement linked to you know to Chavez and everything else has done everything uh, basically it's you know it has everything uh, sort of orchestrated to handily win the elections. The last survey I saw last week uh, suggests that Nicolás Maduro would defeat the most popular, and, and in fact, the, the man who ran against Chávez in, in October, um, uh, a man named Capriles, uh, who the, the poll says that he would defeat him, defeat him by 14 percentage points. So, so, so right now it looks like 
like continuity. It looks like continuity. It looks like they have done, you know, uh, the right kinds of things for this movement to 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 prevail. Um, so that's basically where, at least politically, where Venezuela sits. And we're joined now by Noticias WFT reporter Veronica Fuentes to talk a little bit more about the uh, the death of Hugo Chavez and the situation in Venezuela. Now, um, Veronica, you have family in Venezuela right now. What are they telling you about what's going on? You can definitely see the both sides of the story. I talked to my parents yesterday, and it uh, although people to to most people it didn't come as a shock because he's been sick for a while now. My mother told me that there are people walking their dogs outside. Nothing's happening. Although, yeah, I my hometown's not, it's kind of far away from the capital, but what I've heard from Caracas is that there's that you see the other side. People are not going out. There's no traffic. It's a city with pretty bad traffic. So people are very maybe respectful or um, they're they're paying their respects. I think to the dead president. I mean, he was at command of the country for about 15, 14 years. So although he wasn't very um, pleasant with half of the people and uh, the other half loved them. It's definitely a big change and a big shock to most people. So you can definitely see some difference from everyday life. Okay. And um, pretty much, I mean, this is right, the kind of story that um, Notices WFT focuses on when it's covering um, Latin American affairs. Now, I know that, you know, this kind of a story may be a little bit challenging to cover for not only Notices WFT, but the American media at large. Yeah, it's definitely a uh, difficult story to cover just because we're getting information. We, we need to get official and confirmed information. And the only way to get that is via the government. Um, there's a lot of crazy things going on around social media, especially Twitter. There are a lot of rumors and speculations about the cause of death, what the illness was, how long he's been. Like, if there's a rumor going on that he's been dead for a while now and they just decided to say it. So... And that, that's all fine um, and good, but we can't use it until we have something confirmed. And the only thing that we have confirmed is what comes out of the government, which is very vague and very ambiguous. So it's definitely hard to cover some something like this and to tell people what they want to hear, keep the people informed if you don't have much to say or to cover, at least. All right. All right. Well, that was uh, w- Noticias WFT reporter Veronica Fuentes. Thank you so much for uh, joining us. Thank you for having me. And you can catch Notices WFT on Saturday mornings at 6 right here on Florida's 89.1 WFTFM. Alachua County has a new community health plan being implemented as part of a long-term goal for the state to achieve national accreditation as a public health agency. Florida's 89.1 WUFTFM's Heather Van Blocklin has the story. The Alachua County Health Department begins a new community health improvement plan after 18 months of work with several community organizations and leaders. The plan covers two main goals for Alachua County, to provide access to comprehensive primary care and preventive services to Alachua County residents, and to promote general wellness. Health Department Program Manager Gay Kaler Side says the ultimate goal is for citizens to be as healthy as possible, knowing that there are diverse goals within the community. The vision for the plan is a community where everyone can be healthy with the understanding that we have a very diverse um, community here and what's healthy for one person may not necessarily, you know, be a definition of health for someone else. Health Department Administrator Paul Meyer says this community plan has several specific benefits to Alachua County organizations. Uh, some of the things that have already been implemented, for example, is our flu program in the public schools and the private schools. 
where we are reducing the effects of influenza uh, sickness and, and mortality in our community. Uh, a number of other initiatives that are in place that are continuing our tobacco-free Alachua County initiatives, uh, working with the school board to reduce, ob reduce obesity in our schools. And so it, it really builds upon some of the efforts that have been in place, uh, but really formalizes it in terms of specific work plans and, and timelines. Meyer says that this effort from several community groups in Alachua County has made it possible to continue to provide services to the uninsured. And he says the goal continues to be to target those populations who don't have adequate access to health care currently. We have populations that have issues with uh, proper diabetes management, for example. We have uh, segments of our population, particularly in the 15 to 24-year-olds, where we have um, exceeding rates of sexually transmitted infections. Uh, we have segments in our population that suffer from obesity, and so we really are targeting a wide spectrum of groups in Alachua County to improve the health of, of those individuals and improve the overall health of the county. Kaylor Side says the program will also provide services to the underinsured in the community. Right now we have the Affordable Care Act uh, that we will wait to see in this state how that's going to be implemented. Uh, but even people who have health insurance, uh, sometimes if the copay is a $50 copay, they can't afford that. Um, so just because you have health insurance doesn't necessarily mean you have full access to care. After the major losses incurred during the Great Recession, the Dow Jones Industrial Average has largely recovered and hit a new high. The Dow closed at 14,254, exceeding the last record of 14,165, hit in October of 2007 and marking an all-time high. This means the Dow has regained all the losses it incurred during the Great Recession. I spoke with UF Finance professor Brian Jundro about the milestone and what it means about the larger economy. Yesterday we saw a um, historic event in the uh, Dow Jones um, Industrial Average. It hit a um, record high of 14,253 when it closed, and then it had hit um, the previous high a little bit earlier in the day that was seen in 2007. What does this say about the um, economy as a whole? I think it's a good sign. Now, bear in mind, the stock market can do well even in times of fairly tepid growth. And we have had tepid growth, and the forecasts are for continued weak growth of uh, really no more than about 2% for, uh, for the calendar year on the part of some uh, macroeconomic forecasters like J.P. Morgan. Uh, but I think the key here is that earnings have been strong. Corporate earnings uh, have grown since 2009, have grown 71%. And what we know as economists is that stock prices and corporate earnings tend not to, their growth rates tend not to deviate too much from one another. They got out of alignment for a while. But by and large, uh, stock prices will track earnings, and earnings growth has been strong. And that's been a reflection of not so much a really strong economy, but a strong enough economy. Uh, managers of firms have found ways to make money globally. It seems like the the reaction among um, investors has been a little bit kind of um, tepid, I guess is the word. I mean, it seems like they're not um, overly excited necessarily by this news. Is um, Why might that be the case? I think it's a reaction to their having been burned so badly twice in the last decade. Uh, two times since 2000, the S&P 500 has lost almost, in one case, almost 50% of its value. In another case, over 50% of its value. Now, it's regained all those losses, but uh, what we know from behavioral psychology, behavioral finance, is that people dislike losses a lot more than they like gains. 
it really seems to hurt people when they open up their financial statement to see that there's thousands of dollars less there than there was last time they opened the statement uh, the previous quarter. So it, it takes it's going to take a while for people to come back. Uh, frankly, I'm surprised they haven't come back uh, stronger than they have. Uh, they're starting to. We see this in the mutual fund data uh, for the first time this year. People seem to be shifting away from from bond funds into stock funds. But given that the yield on 10-year treasuries is is less than 2%, and the inflation rate is running uh, about 2%, uh, basically people are getting a, a flat, if not negative, yield on bonds, certainly getting negative yield if they're only getting half a percent on their CDs. So I think this uh, move into stocks is overdue. But though I agree with you, it's still slow. What does it also say? Um, I mean, you mentioned that the um, that earnings have been pretty good for companies, and that um, is part of the reason why we saw this rise. But at the same time, what can also be said about um, the relationship between this high being hit yesterday and um, kind of Main Street America economics? Yes, I think so. I think it works both ways. First, when the stock market goes up, people feel a little better. Uh, in part because they're richer. They took a big hit in the net worth when they got the double whammy when both stock prices and house prices went down in 2008-2009. Now they have reason to feel a little bit better, and we do know that consumption is often uh, keyed upon how much uh, wealth people think they have, perceive they have going forward. They start thinking, wow, maybe I don't have to put so much aside for my kid's education or that second home or my retirement. I can go out and spend a little bit. Uh, But as I said, it works both ways, too. Uh, one of the reasons the stock price has been going up is the economy has, has grown not as fast as anyone would like. It's been below trend growth by and large for the last few years. And it hasn't been fast enough to bring unemployment rate down at anything like the speed anyone would like to see. But unemployment rate has been coming down. Uh, sectors of the economy that have been depressed for a long time, notably housing, have been coming back. That has spillover effects throughout the rest of the economy. When People buy houses, and they also buy furnishings for the houses. Or they say, "Well, gee, we need a new kitchen after we've bought this house." Uh, so it does it does spill over to the rest of the economy. And so I, I I do think you're getting that positive feedback. We do see sometimes that the stock market will make these um, huge jumps. That it'll it'll rise many points, and then later on in the week, um, it might drop that many points, and the white the winds are essentially wiped out. Can we expect to see that um, in with this particular high that was hit yesterday? I think so. Uh, basically, this one thing we do know indisputably about the stock market is it's quite volatile. Uh, there are always big differences of opinions. There's always a buyer for every seller. Uh, when the market hit a new high yesterday, you could go to the major news networks, the CNBC and CBC, people arguing about whether the market was going to go right back down again, back and forth all day long. So, sure, uh, the market, the cliche is the market always climbs a wall of worry. There's still a lot of things to worry about out there. Uh, we still have a good deal of dysfunctionality in Washington. Uh, Europe's not out of the woods. Uh, corporations really have are investing more than one would think, uh, given a lot of the commentary, but they're still sitting upon mounds and mounds of cash, and, and banks are still sitting on huge amounts of excess reserves. So the economy's really not anywhere near up to full speed yet. And the bad news, you know, it, it doesn't take much for, for you know, if, if you've got 49% of the market that thinks that, that, that the recent gains have been overdone, it's going to take very little for uh, any snippet of bad news to get them to sell. 
Okay. Now, um, earlier this week, we saw one of the big concerns that, um, as you touched on a moment ago, um, that sometimes worries the stock market. Earlier this week and late um, last week, we saw the question of the sequester about, you know, how the um, huge budget cuts on the part of the federal government might worry um, the economy and economists in, in general. Um, how, to what extent does that still weigh on the economy now? Because we know that the sequester cuts are not going to be felt as one fell swoop. Yeah, I think it's a legitimate concern. As a matter of fact, I'm a little bit surprised that the market has managed to hit a new high amid such concerns. Because uh, one thing we've learned over the past few years is that fiscal policy matters, is that those governments, particularly uh, in Europe, that have cut the most are the ones that are, that are now experiencing the uh, biggest decline in GDP. I don't know why that wouldn't be the case in the United States. And in fact, I think the consensus among economists is that even though the government may be bloated, government spending has not been rising. If you can count state and local governments, it's actually been falling the last three years and it's expected to fall for, uh, in the future. Uh, my reading of the research results is that the economy is really far more sensitive to increases and in declines in government spending than, than is commonly realized. Uh, I think the sequestration probably will have an adverse impact. And, and by the way, it's, it's sequestration coming on top of the, in, to, the increase in the payroll tax at, at, uh, at the beginning of the year as well. So you're getting sort of two hits to, to, uh, from fiscal policy onto the consumer and on the businesses. Uh, so I, you know, why, is it, why is the market rising despite that? And, and of course, the market's up slightly a bit today so far as well. If you look at the polls, actually, the number of people who think the sequestration doesn't go far enough and the further cuts are needed actually exceeds the number of people who think that the sequestration goes too far. So so there's still some mixed opinion about this. Uh, there's still quite a bit of fog about what the sequestration all means. I, I think once the signs have become visible, I think it will have a, um, a deterrent effect on income growth. And how, might, how soon might those um, effects be felt? Well... I don't know that the effects of the sequestration have been felt at all yet. Uh, probably they'll stop be f being felt. Uh, is, is my reading of the news accounts of this is that they'll be felt over the next month, beginning, you know, sort, sort of loaded in towards the end of the month. When, um, you know, people hear the, um, the markets hitting this new high, um, how does that kind of tie in with, um, on a local level, what we see here in, in north central Florida? I mean, do we see kind of a relationship between that high and what we can expect to see here in north central Florida? Kind of how, how does that affect us um, locally? I think only on a secondary or tertiary basis. Uh, I think what would have more of an impact here in north Florida is, uh, is more strength in the housing market, frankly. Uh, I think that's a little more visible. Uh, north Florida is not a high-income area or high-wealth area compared to, say, some of the uh, portions of the Florida coast. Uh, we have some of the wealthiest counties in the United States. So I, I don't think it would have as much of an impact here in Florida. can't hurt, though. Uh, if nothing else, there's a psychological impact. There's a feel-good factor. Uh, it just make, makes people wonder why, what's going on. Wow, things are getting better. Uh, it just it helps. I still think that uh, the outlook for the stock market is fairly good, and I think people uh, would be well advised to maintain a substantial equity allocation equities. All right, fantastic. Well, Brian Jandro, thank you so much for your time. Okay, my pleasure. Continuing our coverage on the candidates for city commission, 21-year-old Alfredo Espinosa is running for the District 4 seat against former city commissioner Mark McGeechern and, an incumbent Randy, and incumbent Randy Wells. Espinosa is originally from Venezuela. He's attending the University of Florida and is a member of 
the Delta Tau Delta fraternity. He's also a third-year building construction major. WFT.org's Jensen Worley spoke with Espinosa about his campaign platform. What jobs have you had? Um, I worked as the last job I held. I was an orientation leader here at the university. I was a preview staffer. And, and I worked all summer with the Dean of Students Office and the new student and family programs. Um, just working, I mean, pretty much day in, day out, just, just working preview and, and trying to make sure that these freshmen coming in and the transfer students uh, were getting the most out of their experience to make sure that, you know, we represented the university in, in the best manner possible. Uh, how do you feel about being so young and running for city commission? I feel great, honestly. Uh, it's been it's been incredible just seeing you know the amount of support that I've been able to garner, not only from students but local residents in the community and local business owners who are not only happy to see somebody my age want to make a difference, but are happy to see that somebody my age not only wants to make a difference but is capable of you know making that happen and and, and having that seat at the table and, and getting the stuff done. Um, I think, like I said, I think it's great. I'm, I'm very excited about it, um, especially being as young as I am. You know, I'm, you know, it's, I'd like to show people of my generation, of our generation, that it doesn't matter how old you are, or where you come from, or how much money you have. You know, if you want to accomplish a goal and you set your mind to it, and it's for the right reasons that you can get it done. When did you first express interest in politics, and what happened along that path? Um, I. I don't know. People all my life always ask. You know, I, was, I guess I was pretty sociable growing up, and uh, I've always liked to say, you know, I've been a people's person. I, I like, you know, getting to know people and, you know, just talking and listening. Um, so people always kind of joked about it with me growing up, saying, "Hey, you're going to be a politician one day." And I never really thought about it seriously until recently. Um, and I just, I just was wondering. Well, first of all, you know, not only do I want to give back to my community, but I do think it's, it's something I would be good at and something I could, I could, you know, I could get these goals accomplished. Um, because not only do I have the ability to work and listen with my, listen to what the people have to say, but to sit down and put my mind to it and get the job done. Um, so, you know, I've, I've always kind of had it in the back of my mind, and it wasn't until recently with the local elections coming up. Um, that I really jumped into it, and you know, it's become something I'm I'm incredibly passionate about. And you know, it's it's like I said, it's been such a great opportunity, such a great experience. What do you want to be known for, either in politics or in general? And I want to re-engage our generation, and I want to show them that first of all, there's a need for change. There's a need for change, not only in, in, in here in our community, but on a global community. And we need to start now because we're going to face a lot of challenges. We're going to face a lot of issues, and we need to start solving them. And, if, you know, like I said, it doesn't really matter how old you are or, or how much money you have. You know, if you want to do something and you believe that you can get it done, that you can, that you can do it. And if I can leave behind one thing, and is that is, is show people that, you know, there is that need for change and that we are completely competent and able to do it. What is your vision for City Commission? My vision is a City Commission that will actually, that will represent properly the constituents and the residents of Gainesville. Um, you know, if just, just out of principle, in a town of about 125,000 people, when you have 50,000 students plus, it just makes you wonder why there's no, <clears throat> there's not a, bigger sense of student representation at a city level, and, and that's kind of just out of principle. 
Um, but my vision would be a city commission that can sit down, listen to what the residents and the citizens of Gainesville have to say, and one that can come together and make decisions together. Because right now things are so polarized that work isn't able to be done because people are constantly bickering or arguing about political issues, you know, between themselves that don't matter for the rest of the constituency. And they're not able to get uh, the job done, and, and it's costing a lot of taxpayers money, and, and a lot of problems are coming because of it. So, you know, if I have one vision for the city commission, it's just one that can come together and solve, you know, find these solutions for the best and, and for the betterment of, of our community. Why is it that you stand behind this vision? In terms of my platform? Yeah. Well, first of all, is, is public safety is number one. And I think that comes in, in, in just walking the streets and being a part of the community and hearing what people have to say. And you know, the soft closing of bars goes hand in hand with that because not only is that a safety issue, but it's something students have been advocating for and asking for for years. And, and the city commission hasn't, hasn't even, you know, hasn't done anything about it. They haven't taken the time to, to hear what students have to say or listen to our, you know, read our statistics and, you know, find the truth behind the matters. Um, rather, it's just, it's just shut away because there is no representation. And, and um, so that's, you know, that's, again, that's kind of my vision. Um, but uh, there are a number of issues I'll be tackling. Um, one of them is uh, cutting down on utility rates as well. That's my second platform issue is looking into GRU's budget and uh, figuring out, you know, their operations and making sure they're operating as efficiently as possible, um, trying to find, get the city out of this biomass issue, uh, getting a settlement out of that contract because we're wasting millions and millions of dollars. I mean, it's costing us $70 million a year um, just, to, just to deal with the biomass plant. Uh, you know, the city, what, what people are going to realize is that the city is, uh, you know, financially right now, we're, we're not being responsible. Um, the city commission hasn't been responsible financially, and, and there needs to be some uh, realization of the truth, you know, you know some transparency there, and, and re- re- revelation of the facts so, so the citizens of Gaines will know what's actually going on. And uh, one of my biggest goals, too, is, is just to bridge the gap between the University of Florida and the city of Gainesville, um, in terms of in terms of a number of ways, but the first of which is you have this highly trained, um, highly specialized, constant labor supply coming out of the University of Florida, and the problem is that the city of Gainesville doesn't make it attractive for University of Florida graduates to stay in this area and start companies or you know develop technology here because everybody goes elsewhere because there's better opportunities. Well, the city needs to make living in Gainesville, an attractive place for students to want to graduate and not only work here, but stay. And one where the city can foster innovation and get, you know, money from outside. That was WUFT.org's Jensen Worley speaking with Gainesville City Commission District 4 candidate Alfredo Espinoza. This week is National Consumer Protection Week. The Florida Department of Agriculture uses this week to tally up the top complaints Florida consumers make in a year and address them. This year, there were more than 2,000. As Florida's 89.1 WUFTFM Charlene Chogo reports, consumers are encouraged to know the facts about who they do business with so they can make informed decisions. 
To anyone who has ever been pressured by a persistent telemarketer, this week is for you. The first week in March marks National Consumer Protection Week, a time that the Florida Department of Agriculture and Consumer Services uses for consumer awareness of illegal sales tactics. The department press secretary, Aaron Gillespie, says scam artists are out there and people should know how to protect themselves. People are out there to scam other people, and that's unfortunate. You know, um, we want all people in the state of Florida to be able to protect themselves, um, to not give their information out to someone. You know, th these things can have short-term effects, but they can also have long-reaching effects. If you're giving your personal or financial information out to someone who you don't know um, for a purchase, they can use that information for years to come and, um, and you know, ruin your credit. It can really cause long-term damage. Gillespie says the department investigates fraud year-round and takes all consumer complaints seriously. Throughout the year, we are investigating claims where people are being ripped off and scammed, and we are putting people out of business and finding people and um, actually arresting people who are taking advantage of others. Gillespie says many people believe that telemarketers are supposed to be pushy, but in the past week, the department has issued almost $200,000 in fines and made 18 arrests, 10 of which were for unlicensed or unlawful telemarketing. By law, telemarketers have to be uh, licensed by the state of Florida, so not only does the business have to be licensed, but the people who are doing the actual sales also have to be licensed. And so in many cases, they just don't have the appropriate licenses. In other cases, they might be using um, unlawful sales te techniques, pressuring people to purchase things or just not being honest about what they're selling. The department's website, www.freshfromflorida.com, offers consumers advice to avoid becoming victims of scams, but Gillespie says the most important tip is to be cautious with their personal information. The, the top tip, really, is to never give your personal or financial information out to someone that you don't know. Um, that will help keep you safe. Um, in addition, to research any transaction, um, research a business before you make a transaction. So whether you're going to get your car repaired or you're signing uh, a lease, or uh, you're making any other kind of purchase to make sure it's a legitimate business. Make sure they're... And that was WFTFM's Charlene Chogo. Thanks for tuning in to the front page edition of All Things Considered. This has been a broadcast of Florida's 89.1 WUFTFM. I'm Chip Scambus. And I'm Chris Peralta.